light. <laughs> uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out. Um, all the five speakers before me have been looking in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, primarily they've been looking at uh, the book of Solomon. They are trying to look for an answer to the meaning of life. That has been the motivation from the outlook of King Solomon, looking for an answer to the meaning of life. And that's what I plan to continue this evening. But before I go forward, I have my thought divided into three. One, I would like to provide some insight into the conceptual framework of all the philosophical issue that informs some of our cultural ideas about how we get into this kind of confusion about life. Some of our, our culture offers some examples, empty examples and fulfillment that you don't have to be satisfied. Don't get comfortable. I just want to examine the conceptual framework that lead to that. Because that is the opposite of what Solomon is trying to say. So I want to provide an insight into the philosophical issues. Just an historical background to understanding what, um, what this will really mean and the implication for our society. I will be talking primarily about the existentialism, which is mentioned this morning, and postmodernism. And um, please bear with me if I sound a little like Rafi Zachariah. <laughs> and um, secondly, I want to touch on what Jesus, the insight that Jesus Christ offered in the book of John, chapter 14. And I want to touch on that. When Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. What prompted that? We will find that in chapter 13 of John. And I, will, I have tried to do an exposition of, exposition of the chapter 13. And I came up with some things that activities, mundane activities, that happened between Jesus Christ and his disciples that touched on every aspect of our, of our lives. We, we can relate to that. And those are the things that prompted Jesus Christ to say, do not let your heart be troubled. That's the second one. And thirdly, if I have time, I will be talking about the main event of the night, which is Ecclesiastes chapter, 14, chapter 5. I wouldn't want to dwell so much of that because the concept of money is examined in that, in that chapter too. And all the speakers before me, they've, in some measure, they have looked into that. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together once again to examine your word. I just pray, Lord, that you will speak through me so that I won't be hard, Lord, and you will prepare the hearts of your children to receive and be impacted by your word. I pray for myself, Lord, that you will make me, give me the grace, help me, Lord, to practice what I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. 
what Solomon was talking about essentially in the book of Ecclesiastes is he was trying to find a meaning or an answer to the meaning of life. And what Solomon is saying, according to the philosophers, is that essence precedes our existence. The claims to knowledge and truth is the product of social and historical interpretation. And for Solomon, these are socially constructed and they are fact of life. You do not come to this world only to say, I have a choice, I have the free will to determine what I want to do or who I want to be in life. That God is the purpose for our existence and that he has created us for his purpose if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, Solomon discussed briefly about the futility of human existence. But he did not dwell on that. He believed that a life that is not centered on God is without meaning and purpose. And he encouraged all Christians to focus on what is important and meaningful in life. Brother David was talking about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Looking unto Jesus, who is the hoarder and finisher of our faith this morning. So Solomon hints that life is not supposed to be meaningless and purposeless, and that we were made far greater for far greater things god created us for himself in his own image and in ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 we find that god has set eternity in human heart he has created that vacuum so that we can we are born religious we are born religious not here religious as some of the people we want us to believe god has created a vacuum in our heart to desire and to seek that higher authority. There is an awareness, there is that consciousness in, in us that says that this is not all it is to life and that we have to seek him. God has planted that there even before we come into being. And that is what David is arguing. That is the argument of Solomon, sorry, that essence precedes assistance. But our culture has turned it upside down. There is a philosophical movement that started in shortly after the Second World War, which is called the existentialism. Brother David was trying to say something about it this morning. And these existential philosophers are Soren Kierkegaard, Jim Possard, Friedrich Nietzsche, Albert Camus, they hold all wrote different accounts of existential, existential attitudes. And primarily, what they are talking about was emphasized by Karl Marx, who is the father of socialism. The thesis of Karl Marx is that in the study of history, the history of mankind is a history of struggle. And the struggle is between those who have and that those who do not have. He called them the oppressed and the oppressing. And the solution for, for this, 
according to Karl Marx, is that there should be a revolution. And people took it far and wide, far implication of what he has said. And he made another pronouncement. He said, the philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. And they have changed it. And they are still changing it. All the foundations that we hold so true to us. God-centered nation. They began to change it to secularism. The institution of marriage, they've tampered with it. Sanctity of human life, they are turning it. Karmak said the point is to change it. So they argue, the existential philosophers argue that it is not essence that precedes existence, but rather the other way, that existence precedes essence. And what they are saying is that all the philosophical claims of truth and knowledge that you and I know to be true are socially constructed. They were constructed by you and me. And as such, that is living a life that is based on those facts is not an authentic life. You have to have your own violation, your own free choice in order to determine what you want for yourself in life. Those are empty philosophies, empty, empty that cannot lead to fulfillment. So in existential theory, we find absurdity. It's a contradiction. And then we find hopelessness, despair. I don't know if I'm saying it well. Hopelessness, because if you say that a person cannot be, shouldn't be satisfied, a person shouldn't be comfortable, what if you try all what you can and you still can't be the person that you want to be? Then you, the, the people now descend into hopelessness. And you know the way out? The existential theory says that suicide is a distraction to the boredom of human life. You have the right to take your life. You have the right to even kill someone as a mercy killing. That is what our culture is offering. But not many people knew how it all started. And the postmodernist theories brought it into the foyer. They've turned everything down. All the truth that we know, they said no, they are all made up by the philosophical order, by religious codes, by the Christians. So they are attacking all the fabrics of these pillars. So which one is easier to tell a child that if you want to live a life that is meaningful and purposeful, you have to live it with God? That is only what makes meaning. But they are changing the world based on these philosophies. Albert Camus says that human life, there is futility of human life. He compares human life to someone who is rolling a rock onto the hill and letting it go down after it gets to the summit of the hill. And you continually does that. And what he was trying to explain is that we engage in all activity, mundane activities and repetition, all that, that makes no meaning. So you should give individuals the credit of choosing for themselves. But that is not the way Solomon saw it. Solomon says, essence precedes our existence. We live for God. That is what really makes meaning in life.
Can you please turn your Bible to the book of um, John chapter 13? John chapter 13. And I know this is a story, this is an, a, a biblical account that we are all familiar with. But when I studied this passage, I was able to see how Jesus Christ related with his disciple. And I was able to highlight some of the points from the relationship to see how all of us can relate with this. And then see in chapter 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, the insight that Jesus Christ offers about how we can deal with all these things that are happening in the same time. But before that, I will tell you something. I think um, there is a story that one man was invited, a guest speaker was invited to a convocation ceremony, I think in, in the university to speak. And he titled his passage, the, the, what he was going to read, he titled it to be, the title of, this, of, his, of his speech was, May Your Road Be Rough. That is what he told the, children, the, the students. May your road be rough. And what essentially what he was trying to tell them is that life is not full of bed of rose and, and roses. That you should expect some ups and downs as you are going into the world in order to become successful. That if I tell you that it's easy out there, I will be lying to you. So essentially he was telling them that may your road be rough because he said God will meet with you and every opportunity that you are going to have there will make meaning in your life. So in, chapter, in John chapter 13, Jesus Christ was aware that he was going to die. Prior to that, he predicted his death. So he called his, the disciples together. And in verse 1, we can see that it was just before the Passover, the Passover festival. And what I got from that is that in life, we plan. We have hopes. We make arrangements. We are looking forward to our children's graduation, weddings and all that. Nothing wrong with that. But it just struck me that there is something to plan for. There is an event that is coming up in Jerusalem. And Jesus was, is aware of this. And what happened in verse 2, in verse 1, said, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Amidst all this planning, or thinking that something is coming up, there is an awareness of death. And Solomon mentioned this a lot in his, in, in his book. But he said, do not be trapped in between birth and death. Don't be trapped in it. But it's a fact of life. There is separation. Christ was going to be separated from his disciples and even from his loved ones. And so every one of us here at some point, that will happen. That is, another, that is, another, that is an activity. Apart from the anticipation, there is an awareness of that. And in verse 1 again we said, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We see love. We see relationship. 
we see marriages. I can compare that to, if you can, if you can hold on to that, we see, we've seen the awareness of that, we've seen relationship, we have hope. Then in verse two, we said the evening meal was in progress. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's merriment. Potluck, if you would like to say. And in life, we do have that too. It's all, all these mundane things that make up of our life. All these were coming and they were showing in Jesus Christ's relationship with his disciple. And what do we see again in verse 2? And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, uh, Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus Christ. We see sin and Satan. Our life sometimes, we, 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 we encounter that. There is Satan in the world. And in our search to find the meaning of life, these are the little things that touched us, that touched on our, the aspect of our life on a daily basis. We've seen awareness of death. We've seen separation, sin, and Satan. And again in verse 8, Jesus was, talking, was going to wash Peter's feet. And what did Peter say? No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I do not consider this as an arrogance on the part of Peter. I just see it as a form of humility and respect. He honored Jesus Christ so much that he wouldn't want Jesus Christ to do that. In all our, in our lifestyles, in our relationship, we exhibit that as well. We have moments of humility. We relate to each other with respect. And I see that happening between Jesus Christ and his disciples as well. Even in the family, in our home, in our workplaces, this can exhibit itself. In verse 12, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And that is a lesson in leadership, in duty, and in humility. In verse 9, then the Lord said to Peter, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Eventually the person who would not want Jesus Christ to wash his feet, eventually complied. He obeyed, obedience. I see that too, as one of the things that we live for. We live obedience. And in verse 15, I have set you as an example that you should do, that you should do as I have done for you. This is teaching. This is a time for teaching. I have set you as an example to do likewise. Based on do as I do. In verse 17, Jesus said, now that you, have, you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. That is a promise. We have promise in this life. We give promises to our children. We promise our wife. I see that too as all, one of the activities that is going on in within this short chapter. Promise. In verse 19, it says, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, 
you will believe that I am who I am. I call that a blessed assurance. We all need to be assured. We need to be assured that Jesus is who he is on a daily basis. And knowing that fact will make us to really go away. And it's part of what we deal with every, on, on, on a daily basis too, or even in our lifetime. In verse 18 it says, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. That is, that is another one for uh, fulfilled prophecy. In verse 21, it says, very true, I tell, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Here we see betrayer. It's all happening. Judas was going to betray Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was aware of that. In verse 21, we read that after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. In this life, we will be disappointed. We will have troubled spirits. And Jesus had that too. We, have, we will be worried. We will be weary. And that is to buttress my point when the speaker was saying, may your road be rough. These are the things that dotted our life. No matter how old you are, even if you are young, you will still at some point in your life experience all these things. It's a given. But Jesus Christ would not want you to be stuck in between birth and death. And what did he offer? Shortly before that, in verse 38, what we see, before the rooster crow, you will disown me three times. This is Jesus Christ talking to Peter. And there, what do we learn there? We see pride, broken ego. We see discouragement on the side of Peter. And in the midst of all of these things going on, in within this short chapter, what do we see? Jesus make a pronouncement in, in, in chapter 14, verse 1. And what did he say? If you go to chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let. I underline that in my Bible. That is a conscious effort. He's, it's an encouragement that it can possibly happen that you can let your heart be troubled. You can dwell in all these uncertainties and repetitions, mundane things of life. But Jesus is telling us, do not let your heart be troubled. And he wouldn't stop there. He wouldn't give a, put a loophole as to what you are supposed to do when you are confronted with all these uncertainties and life, life, life dealings. Then Jesus said what? Believe in me. He said, you believe in God and believe also in me. Jesus is not offering an empty philosophy here. He's not hovering you as suicide as a way out of it. Jesus is saying that do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in me and believe in God. That is the way forward. A life without God is a purposeless and meaningless life. And Jesus Christ wouldn't want us to be part of that. So as a conscious effort, Jesus said, it is possible to be overwhelmed. 
It is possible for us to get all this mixed up. But no one thing, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. So that will take us to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you can open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we found that Solomon has been visiting places. He has been to the palace. He has been to highway, to the courtroom, and to the marketplace. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, He's only, he went to two places. The first place he went to in chapter 5 is the temple. And what did he find in the temple? He found that people are not worshipping God in truth. People are not worshipping. Their heart is far away from worshiping God. He noticed, and this is not for hom- a non-believer. This is for believers. And he's admonishing us because of these attitudes that we, have, we always bring into the church. We no longer go to the temple. And this is, the, this, we go to the church. But even when we worship in the church, Solomon is saying that, watch your attitude. Be careful. Watch your steps. First one say, guide yourself, your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Obedience. Be obedient. Pay attention. Don't be flippant in your worship. And that when you come to worship the Lord, worship both in truth and in spirit. And he gives so much advice when it comes to worship, when it comes to prayer, and when it comes to offering. When it comes to prayer, he said, we should be men of few words. And this is so good, not only in church, even in our homes and in our workplaces. I have an example, which is like when I was growing up, you know, my dad would say that when you see a tree that is so full of leaves, such a tree will bear no fruit or minimum fruit. So if a tree is so leafy, there is going to be so much small fruit to it because of the leaves. But when you see trees that bear so much fruit, you won't see that many that many leaves on it. So God just wants us to choose our words. Even when we have things to criticize in church, he just wants us to pray about it so that we are not flippant. And he wants us, when we, worship, when we come to the church to worship, he wants us to give God the preeminence and the prominence that he deserves. The worship of God is the highest ministry of the church and must come from devoted hearts and yielded will. That's what Warren Willsby said. So the worship of God is a serious business. If you were in the church about two weeks ago, Brother 
Clyde over uh, a scripture on, um, I think it's Matthew 26, about a woman with her alabaster oil who came to worship the Lord. Who poor oil? She was doing this because he was, he was so wrapped up in worshiping, giving all what she's got to edify Jesus Christ. And we notice what, the, what is the attitude of the, of the disciple. They were more into the money aspect of it. To them it was waste. But Jesus Christ, knowing their heart, says what this woman has done, and she will be mentioned everywhere, even to the end of the world. So that is, the, that is what we, when we go to worship, Solomon is cautioning us here that what is important is, the, our, is our heart, a contrite heart. We have to prepare our heart before God. And that is his attitude about worship. And that this is the same attitude that Christians should, should follow. If we do not go to God in that attitude, Solomon is saying here that we are robbing God. We are robbing God of all the honors and the glories and the prominence and the preeminence that he deserves. And there are so many ways that Christians can offer up spiritual sacrifices. We can do that through our body, which is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. We can do that through our money, which is found in Philippians 4, 18. And in Hebrew, chapter 13, verse 15 to 16. If you can turn to that, it's very important. I would like you to see Hebrew, chapter 13, 15 to 16. They said, Through him, therefore, let us constant." Constantly and at all times offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that thankfully acknowledge and confess and glorify his name. We can offer up our spiritual sacrifice through praises and good work. And in 16, he said, do not forget or neglect to do kindness and good to be generous and distribute and contribute to the needy for such sacrifice are pleasing to God. So the first place that Solomon went to was the temple, and he noticed all this. Our attitude has to change. Even in prayer, in offering, in, in our vow to God, don't make promises that you cannot keep. In our offering, he said, give generously to God. And in our prayer, he said, even though we are to pray without ceasing, Solomon is cautioning here that sometimes, even when we have a heart without a word, he's better than having a word without a heart. So we shouldn't just be praying just because we want to be heard or to impress other people who are listening to us. It's a prayer is a very, is a, is a serious business. You can't just go to God and start talking carelessly or recklessly 
as Christians, is admonishing us that we should watch our attitude in this area. Even when we cannot pray, this is something that we, we, ha- we can learn about how to pray so that we can carefully select our word. And I like the way where, um, Wesby put it. He said, if you were to provide, if you were to, 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 to put forward your case before the Prime Minister Trudeau or the White House, you will carefully select your words. How much more when you go before the Lord? So he's telling us that we should be careful. We should watch our steps in the church about all these things, about our offerings, about our vow, about our, uh, 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 the way we worship. And then he moved from there to the city. And in the city, he's talking to the politicians. He saw, because he's a king, he's son how people are oppressing you know, their, their, their subjects, the, the other people that they govern, they lord over. And he's telling that you rob this, you rob other people. But here we see that we should be nice, we should be kind to the needy. But in Solomon days, he's looking at all this and he said, the attitude of the people, the attitude of the public servant, the attitude of the politicians are not good. Then again, lastly, Solomon talked about robbing yourself. And he talks about money. The love of money. Time would not permit me to go. I, I was going to look into Luke chapter 18 to see. I do not have any experience on money matters. But I know who has and who has dealt with it. In Luke chapter 18, a rich man went to Jesus Christ because he was looking for eternity. And I always like the way Jesus Christ answered and you know, responded to him. He called Jesus Christ good teacher. And he said, I have done everything. I have obeyed all the laws of Moses. But tell me, how can I make it to heaven? And Jesus Christ told him, sell all your belongings and give it to the poor. It was recorded that this guy went home sad. And Jesus Christ looked to his disciples. And he said, it would be easier for a needle to pass through the, for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to make it up. And I always like what the way Peter responded. If I have time, let me briefly, go, let me briefly just go over it. When Jesus Christ said it, and I know that when Jesus said it is, not, it is, it is difficult, notice that Jesus did not say it is impossible. But the, the disciples think, okay, it is impossible to achieve this. And God told them, though it is possible for man, it is impossible for man, it is possible for God. What do you think God, Jesus is trying to tell them there? I did it. I left the beauty of my father's throne to dwell with you guys here. If you think it can be done, you are making a mistake. I did it. I left the, the beauty, the comfort of heaven. Oh, to the world here. That is what Jesus Christ is trying to tell them there. And Peter said what? Peter said, behold, we have left all our homes and, uh, and followed you. Essentially what Peter is saying is that what is the need for me? You said your money doesn't matter. 
But what Jesus Christ is trying to tell us here is not that poverty or riches are bad. It is a state of our heart. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher there, Solomon, wants us to know that whatever good things of life that we may have, we should count it as a gift from God. And when you have good life and good taste to enjoy all these things, count it as blessings. Neither poverty nor riches is good. And Jesus is aware of that. But he's not saying that you shouldn't shouldn't work in order to make money. But just be satisfied. And I like the way the the, the, the writer of this book just put it. Where in Wisby, put it simply, in your look, in your search for for a meaningful life, be satisfied. So whatever God has given us, consider it as a gift from God. And if you can enjoy it and share it with other people, it's a blessing from God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I just pray that your Holy Spirit will explain your word in a more deeper meaning and in a sense that you will reach the heart of the heart of people who are here and that you will speak to us concerning our attitude. Grant us the grace, O Lord, to be able to practice what Solomon has observed in terms of our attitude when it comes to worship when it comes to prayer, when it comes to offering, and even in our, in our giving, in our vow to you. For those who are here who have not even turned their life to Christ at the beginning, who still consider that the choice is, them, is for them to decide how to proceed in this life without Christ, I pray that Lord Almighty, you will speak to them and that you will make them to see Jesus Christ as he who, what is, who he is and what he has done for them. As we go into this week, Lord, we pray that your message shall follow us and that in all the things that we have planned for ourselves to do and to accomplish this year, we pray that, Lord, you will strengthen us and meet every one of us at the point of our needs as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>